1: Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at fifty to eighty percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com/slash. Upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
0: Hello, and welcome to my time capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens. And this is the podcast where I ask various people what things from their life they would put in a time capsule. They can choose four things that they cherish and one that they didn't really enjoy at all and would like to see buried in the ground and banished from their life forever. My guest in this episode is the writer, presenter and producer John Lloyd CBE. John has had an extraordinary career. As a radio producer, he created the News Quiz, the News headlines, and quote-unquote. He co-wrote two episodes of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with Douglas Adams before moving on to television, where he produced Not the Nine O'Clock News, Spitting Image, and Blackadder, winning several BAFTAs along the way, including a Lifetime Achievement Award in his late 30s. He now runs his own production company, Quite Interesting Limited, which produces the television show QI and the radio show The Museum of Curiosity, which he hosts, as well as a brilliant podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. I met John at the QI offices to talk about the five things he'd put in a time capsule. Actually, I'm not sure we ever really established what they were, but it was a fascinating chat. And here it is pretty much in its entirety.
2: I think it's very important, particularly with kids, that you make the point that, you know, that uh, you can imagine doing QI for 20 years. My obsession is we don't teach people properly. You know, we don't teach them interestingly. We don't teach them the things that matter and the things they actually need to get them through life. Mm. It's just lists of pointless facts, really, that you've forgotten within three weeks of doing the exam. And uh, so I've already lost my thread, Mike. This is some <laughs> hopeless. No, but, uh, you know, basically the average classroom is basically there's geniuses. There's like Einstein, Mozart, and there's you lot, shelf stackers. Sit down, shut up. Yeah. Um, that's, that's broadly the way education is, and we we've made some sort of social decision a long time ago that there are basically two kinds of people in the world. There are the people who can retain very large numbers of dull facts and put them in orders. And those people become politicians, bankers, corporate lawyers, people who run society. And there's the rest of us who um, you know, can't really do those things to any great degree. And so we end up as you know, plumbers and taxi drivers and actors, yeah. <laughs> television producers, <laughs> that kind of thing. And it's really important to say to people, um, it's not like that. Everybody has a chance. It's all about making an effort. And, and you know, you, you, there's more in you than, the, than you think. You just have to somehow find what it is you're uniquely f- fitted to do. And I believe everybody has that. And that's what we should be doing in schools. And there are some schools... Odd enough, Eaton's one of them. Uh, and I don't know much about, and I know there are some brilliant academies and some brilliant schools up north, which are transformative in this way, where their, their mission in life is with every student, every child in the school to find out what it is they're good at. And it doesn't matter if it's canoeing or pottery or, I don't know, uh, organising a school choir, but if you find that one thing then you're set for life, and most people don't find that as, as somebody said most people die with their music still locked up
0: inside them mm. there was a boy at my school who when it came to exams was just hopeless and mm. uh, and actually his metalwork teacher said he's a brilliant metal worker mm. and persuaded the rest of the school to just let him go to the metalwork mm. room and he became an engineer well this is what i think school should be like his
2: it goes right to, back to Plato, who said that if, uh, early education should be a form of play. That way, you will be better able to discern the child's natural bent. So, that's a Platonic thing, the metalworker's thing. So, Bill Gompertz, the BBC Arts correspondent, is an old schoolgate dad mate. You know, he's a delightful guy. And he tells this story of his uh, interest in education as well. Um, of these two guys who are friends at school and one of them got, you know, straight A's at everything. And the other, when he, he did his GCSEs and he could spell with the grades, the words beef dude, because they were so terrible. Anyway, the guy with straight A's, uh, well, beef dude is now a huge success in Silicon Valley. He's a you know, IT, you know, online genius kind of person and worth millions and millions. And the guy with straight A's works as a solicitor in Cheltenham and hates it. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah, lawyers, that's what So it much is. for exams. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't. And that's the thing, isn't it, in, in life is, you know, the people who apparently are successful are only the people who got back on the horse after falling off, you know. Most yeah. people of some no good at riding. No, 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 you
0: just haven't tried hard enough yet. So do you think that was influenced... Now, here, I'm going back to Wikipedia now. These mm. are things that I didn't know about you. It says that you didn't really start formal education until you were about nine and a half because mm. you were moving around all over the place. So is well, that I did, correct? Yeah, I did go to
2: school, but what would happen is, you know, you, you'd arrive in Malta or something, then there'd be a couple of months trying to get you into the school or whatever, and then you did a bit of that, and then my father would be... You know, posted somewhere else, and we'd have to get in a troop ship. So that was like three weeks, and then then you had to find somewhere to live, and then when you found somewhere to live, you then going to find a school again, and you kept, you know, so about half the year. In my memory, we'd be sitting in a well, station wagons. I used to call them, you know, your, your car with a long boot. Yeah, and my mum sort of teaching us by she used to teach us by doing quizzes, so name three trees beginning with E and so on. So my my idea of education was all fun and laughs and you know like you might go to a pub quiz really yeah and then at nine and a half you know you get dumped in this little prep school in hampshire and you think your mum and dad wave goodbye and you go you are coming back like this afternoon no darling see you in 10 years goodbye (laughs) no (laughs) And, and it's a bit of a shock and that thing of I remember that thing of having to sit in rows and shut up and your, your opinion wasn't... And it, was, it was still quite an eccentric school. I really enjoyed prep school, actually, but it was more that, that thing of, um, you know, having to sit in rows and the teacher decided what it is that you were going to learn that day. Uh, and the good ones went off-grid the whole time. Yeah. So I remember, for example... We had a brilliant maths teacher who was definitely the coolest guy in the school. He's called Mike Pike. Nobody could call him that to his face, but Mr. Pike. And Mr. Pike, I remember, he used to walk like a cowboy. He had that thing when it looked like he had, uh, you know, holsters either side of his hips, you know. <laughs> and he taught maths in a really extraordinary way. He taught two things, maths and current affairs. Amazing we had that. So in current affairs, I remember we all knew about the Vietnam War... Before it started, when it when Vietnam was still French, and we knew about Dien Bien Phu and uh, you know all the all the struggles the French were having, and I remember he had a 3D map of of Vietnam with all the mountains in it, you know, made of plastic or whatever it was, so fascinating. And maths, he taught well two things I can remember: the Platonic solids, you know, the five regular solids that Plato discovered, the you know the tetrahedron and the what are they called, the cube? i um, think so that's three, four, cube. Um, <laughs> Pentagon. Yes. Um, hexagon, is it? Must be. And then a sort of dodecahedron or something like yeah. that. There's only five of them. And that, remember, so there's only five regular solids. So how is that? The world can be so complicated and only these five things are regular um, solids. And, and then he taught us a game called Nim. Uh, which I could still beat you at today. And NIM is you take a random number of piles, each with a random number of objects, and they can be pebbles or matchsticks or toothpicks or smarties, anything like that. So you arrange these piles around the table just randomly. And then the rule is you're allowed to pick up, choose any one pile and pick any number of things uh, in one go, and then the other person has a turn, and the object is to force the other person to pick up the last object. Again, okay, it looks like a random game, but the secret is you have to know binary mathematics. And this is what you do you convert the number, say there's seven matches or smarties in this pile, you have to convert that into a binary maths. So it's one, 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 a seven, so that's a four, a two, and a one. Yes. So you convert it into 111, and then you convert all the other piles, and you add them up in decibel. So two 111s one, one, make 222, two, two, and then you have to destabilize it so that it's an uneven number in decibel, number of things on the pile. <laughs> now, obviously, it's a complicated mental arithmetic, but when you're 9, well, I was 11 when he taught us this, you're really motivated to win the prize, whatever it is, to win the game, to win the chocolate bar, which is the reward or whatever. And so we all learned binary mathematics at 11. So that would have been 1962, when nobody even heard of the word computer, really. Yeah. And computers were the size of houses, you know. But we all understood binary. And I used to play this game all through school and university and beat people. Because here's a little game. but You can't beat me at this. And everyone thinks they can, of course. They think it just must be intelligence. And I've never lost a game. And I remember <laughs> I taught Harry, I taught yeah. Harry, my son, that when he was eleven too, so he can do it. And that thing, that thing, is worth twenty times the number of quadratic equations I've got maths not A level, very bad grade, but I can't remember how to do calculus anymore. But I can still remember Nim, you know, because it was interesting. Mm.
0: Yeah, so... uh, Is this the sort of thing you're interested in, Mike, or am I... No, this is exactly the sort of thing (laughs) I'm interested in. Mike Pike is exactly the sort of thing that would go into the time capsule. Yeah. You would put him in there because he would remind you of that whole way of teaching people that was revolutionary and completely out of the norm. As you say, everybody was taught just this list. Well, Mike Pike never had any trouble keeping order
2: because we were totally in awe of the guy. You know, he was, A, totally cool, and he was you know what, he was, perhaps it's an overused word now, he was an authentic person, he was exactly who he was, never compromised, and, you know, he was the same to everyone. And he was just very cool, and he was very interesting. And, of course, we were all just completely in awe of the guy and willing to do whatever he wanted. And I suppose he must have you know, by accident, but he must have done this and then taught us other stuff. We were so receptive by that stage that we would would have remembered anything
0: he told us, I would think. Mm. I had an English teacher, Mr. Arrowsmith. Mm. He was an English teacher, but he taught us everything else as well. Mm. So he was one of those teachers. They are extraordinary, those people, when you come across them, aren't they? They Yeah. They change your life. Yeah. He told everybody what job they should do. Yeah. And he was the first person to say to me... He said you're a very good liar, so you should be either an actor or a journalist. Fabulous. <laughs> and I went for actor. Really
2: no, I mean, uh, going back to the metalwork, if there were a QI school, that's what it would be. It's is like you get kids at about five, and most of it's larking about for a couple of years, and then you go, that girl's a mathematician, or I'm a Dutchman, you know, this person's a linguist, that one's a carpenter, you know, this one should write plays. Mm. And then the way it works is that people are only competitively examined in the subjects that they really love, the things they're already fitted to do. So the mathematicians do, you know, maths. And you would, if you just concentrate on what people are good at, by the time people were, you know, 12 or 14, they would be at PhD level in maths because this is the thing that, um, Harry, my son's very dyslexic, but he was always good at maths and, um, because he's very bright, as many dyslexics are, all his friends are conventionally very clever people uh, and academically very successful, and t- two of his friends are brilliant mathematicians. And they, they outgrew maths teaching at about 15 mm-hmm. because a, a natural mathematician sees the pattern without thinking about it. So I'm sure you know Will Bowen, yeah, um, who is... Uh, one of the guys who works at QI as a researcher, he's our sort of science experiments guy. Um, and he has a PhD in lattice theory from Oxford. Um, a very, very bright first-class uh, undergraduate degree, obviously.
0: And designed the Tree of Life for the Olympics.
2: Uh, yes, and uh, and the car for Chitty, Chitty Bang Bang and all Rowan Atkinson's stage sets. Mm. Extraordinary polymath guy. Yeah. And he's a natural mathematician. And I once remember saying to him, do you, do you like Sudoku? He goes, No, what's the point? I said, What do you mean? He said, Well, I had to go once and I mean there wasn't any point doing the easy one, so I did the extreme whatever is the frighteningly difficult one, right at the end that people like you and I couldn't begin to do. And he said, I, I looked at it and I just filled it in straight away. I couldn't I couldn't see what what's the point of this. He sees the hidden pattern without thinking about
0: it. Of course. My son, when he was a, a boy at school, in only junior school, would only ever do the last problem that they gave you in the maths tests because he said it's the hardest one. Yeah. So if I can do the last one, I can do the others. Yes. So he would only ever do that. Teachers were furious with him, yeah. and I, I said, "No, he's. It makes complete sense. Mm. You know, just let him do the last one." Yeah, that's right. Well, you see, there's no
2: point by turns in teaching me maths at all, and I, I've got actually three maths O levels and a maths A level because i have so I'm such a I hate to fail. I, I, I'm very determined. I don't give up. So I force myself to do maths aider, but I nearly, you know, bust a brain vessel doing it. A <laughs> vessel. But there's no point in teaching me maths in that way because I'm never going to see the patterns. I'm a words guy. That's what I do. So in a QI school, so Harry's friends, um, uh, Patrick and William, would be straight into maths top set and I wouldn't be competitive exam on maths at all, but when I went to a maths lesson as a non-mathematician, they would tell the story of maths in stories. So they'd tell you about the people who invented the theorems and uh, and what happened to them and uh, you know where they lived and all that. Mm. So you'd imbibe at least some maths by by inference. And, and you'd only know the interesting things. So you'd know NIM, for example, you'd be able to play NIM you'd know about Napoleon's theorem, which is, he invented one, it's about how to, it's too difficult to explain without drawing it, but it's to do with equilateral triangles, which is amazing that Napoleon invented a mathematical theorem that actually works. You'd learn things like maths is the only branch of knowledge where we know that things are correct, whereas physics, you would learn, physics is only a work in progress. All the things we know are just simply the things we haven't managed to disprove yet. Mm. No theory of, of physics is is a done deal. It's only just the best we know. And the maths, it's absolutely it's certain. that According to the rules of maths, that is correct. And it's stayed correct for 10,000 years, perhaps. Mm. Um, so those things, they help you in a social way as well. Because once you know that scientists are just trying hard to get a bit closer to being right, rather than that they are right, a lot of things become... Uh, more interesting and easier to understand and actually you and I don't need to know about quadrilateral equations or calculus, we need to know that it's there and that there are other people who are better at it than us mm. but we'd be far better off reading 10 other books rather than going to maths lessons so the, the theory of the QI school is that the non-mathematicians who are learning about all these amazing people, Leonard Euler and, you know, who went blind towards the end of his life with Legrette, Mattel and Newton and Uh, Napoleon, for all I know, and uh, Carl Gauss and all these amazing geniuses and their personalities and, uh, you know, what they discovered and so forth. It becomes so you say, could I ever go? Could I go up a couple of sets in mass? Because I think I've got this. And sometimes in education, I remember going back to Harry's. My son has been a big lesson to me because. I was one of those conventionally quite clever people at school. So it frustrated me that Harry. I didn't, nobody knew Harry was dyslexic. So both Sarah, my wife and I spent a lot of time trying to help him thinking, how come he doesn't get this? Yeah. Anyway, one of the things that Harry used to love was astronomy. So we used to sit out when he was little in the garden at home and look at the stars and talk, you know, it's often about, you know, why he was in trouble at school. I'd have a large whiskey and, you know, we'd look at the stars and, and, and chat, and so he became fascinated by that, and he opted to do astronomy GCSE, which is by far the hardest. Uh, and of course, because as we didn't know, reading was really difficult. He looked like he was being a bit thick that he couldn't, or he couldn't be asked, you know. So I would read the um, national curriculum bit on astronomy GCSE, and, and it's work out how a reflecting telescope worked as opposed to a, a <laughs> conventional telescope, you yeah. Know? And I'd explain it to him, and he wouldn't sit still, and you know. <laughs> oh dear and then there's a bit of maths in it so i i couldn't do that bit so i struggle with that and anyway we were doing this and it was very frustrating and one day he said it's okay dad i got it now i said what i don't think you have harry he said no i've got it said, something's clicked and he he was off and he understood logarithms i don't how did, how did that happen <laughs> it's all it's all basically maths uh, GCSE astronomy and he got a he got an A. Wow. The only subject you got an A in. Fantastic. Because something and uh, had unlocked fascination about him. Yeah. As well. well he got he was interested to start with was motivated. But something the mathematician in him understood the basic pattern that you need to Yeah. Which is what we all need to know in every subject, which isn't taught at school, is what's the point of studying history, sir? Shut up, Stevenson. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's it's um That that understanding is different to remembering, that's the thing. And that's what Harry did with astronomy, is he got it, you know, in a way that, for example, I don't claim to be good at many things, but I was very good at shooting beer ads and financial services ads. That's the thing. I found my métier in the late 80s, that this little puzzle that lasted only 60 seconds, that needed to contain all these bits of information... And needed to be entertaining and memorable. You had to remember what the product was at the end, and usually some lovely music. That I got that. I understand what it is that makes an advert makes people buy things the advert's telling them about. And I did hundreds of them. I, I, I got it in a way that I don't and still don't get. Uh, well, budgets, for example, never never been able to understand those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my I'm, I'm a, whatever the maths equivalent of dyslexic is. When I see a, a, a set of figures, and my eyes start to swim and I feel ill. Yeah, so that's the thing. So you find what somebody's passion is and you play into that and you feed them
0: as much as they want. And I suppose they pick up the other stuff. There's a yeah. crossover between the two subjects and they say, oh, I need to know that in order to know more about the subject I'm really interested in. Well, it's certainly true. You'll know this as a dad. I mean, if a child finds one
2: thing at school they really like, it doesn't matter if it's tennis, you know, once they find one thing they can do really well, it gives them the self-respect. I think maybe they can have a go at cricket as
0: well. Hmm. And then you have a status in the classroom, so you don't feel frightened to actually approach some of the more academic Well, as we know, lots of people who are sporty get
2: respect in the classroom, even if they're hopeless at you know Latin or whatever.
0: Yeah,
2: Uh, and that's what education should be. It should be the discovery of what is the jewel inside what appears to be a snotty little brat who won't sit still. (laughs) What is it about? Because I believe everyone's a genius. I mean, I don't—you'll never dissuade me from that idea. And it's a shame that we, we are losing, you know, 80% of our geniuses to a thing which is shut up, sit down. Mm. And
0: learn this list. Yeah. I agree completely. Uh, I could never understand why we had to do spelling tests because you were bound to learn it in the end. If you write down something that people could understand is that word, it didn't really matter that you misspelled it, I thought. And the teachers were furious with me. I would say, yeah. it'll come in the end, I'll <laughs> get it.
2: Well, it's, it's, and I nearly have. <laughs> well, I've never not been able to spell a word. I only have to see it once, and, and so. But well, here's the thing: there are only six extant uh, versions of Shakespeare's name, which we know he actually wrote down with his own hand. Six of them, and they're all spelled differently. So Shakespeare, the probably the greatest writer in the history of the world, couldn't spell. Yeah, it's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I know lots of writers. Well thing about all the writer's sign there is, is, A, they never have a pen. You know, producers always have a pen, which they have to lend to the writer. <laughs> Secondly, you can't read their handwriting, Richard Curtis. Richard <laughs> Curtis, when he was doing his degree, <laughs> had to be, When they handed him the papers, they couldn't understand a single word. So he had sit, again, privately, and type out his entire essay to time. Uh, and, you know, Ben Elton's spelling is appalling. So writing is nothing to do with being able to spell. It's no. to do with imagination. And weirdly, so is maths. The great mathematicians aren't necessarily good at mental arithmetic. Einstein was hopeless at mental arithmetic. And Will Bowen says that true mathematicians only use about four numbers. Square root of minus one is very important, zero. But anything above four, not terribly interesting. That's for for the text to sort out later. G.H. Hardy wrote a wonderful, he's a contemporary of Wittgenstein at Trinity Cambridge, great mathematician. And he wrote a book called A Mathematician's Apology, in which he says, a mathematician, like a painter or poet, is a maker of patterns. So what great mathematicians do, the people who move the cursor of the world on a bit, they're imagineers. They're much more like novelists, mathematicians
0: than they are like engineers, for example. Mm. Mm. The book, Fermat's Last Theorem, uh, made me cry. Mm. It was so moving, I thought. The moment when the people in the room realised that he'd solved the equation, that he'd found Fermat's mm. last theorem and proved it. Mm. Uh, the description of that in the book is so extraordinary. And then there's a photograph that goes with it of, of people rising to their feet and with their hands in the air, a look of amazement on their faces. Mm. It's an extraordinary thing. I read it, it absolutely made me cry because mm. you realise this is a man who's spent years and years and years just going through this incredibly complicated problem. And had combined two sides of mathematics mm. to solve this problem. Mm. Incredible that the, the, the human brain is capable of it. But as you say, the chances are there are all sorts of people out there who are capable of doing those things, and we're we're throwing them
2: away. Yeah, I mean, we, we're still really educating people as if Britain had an empire. So you need a lot of civil servants. Uh, People are very organized, you know, dealing with, say, data, essentially data processors, which, of course, now we're discovering that, you know, AIs can do that much better. You know, they're rapidly replacing lawyers, for example. So AIs that can read text um, can do an awful lot of lawyers work. And it's, it's really interesting the way if we get through this current series of crises and the human race survives in any sort of civilized form. The interesting thing about AIs is that it's, it's really counterintuitive. Stephen Fry introduced me to this thing called Moravec's Paradox. Do you know about that? No, I don't. So Moravec's Paradox is the discovery that things that AIs can do and things that people can do don't really overlap very much. We've got absolutely nowhere on what's called artificial general intelligence, which is the ability to write a novel or solve problems you've never seen before. AI is a very good specialist, so they can drive cars. But an AI that can drive a car can't play chess, and vice versa. You know, they just they just do one. So it's sort of like extremely autistic people in a way. And the jobs that currently get our respect as being very difficult for the average person, like being a corporate lawyer or a banker or whatever, these are very difficult for people like you and me. AIs can do in a twinkling. You know, I mean, hedge funds are basically run by algorithms, not people. Mm. But things that you and I think are child's play, literally like tying a pair of shoelaces, no robot has been invented that can lace up a pair of trainers. It's too complicated. (laughs) Um, And so the theory is that the people whose jobs are going to survive are not the lawyers and the bankers, but things like gardeners, because weeding, they haven't invented an AI that can do that. Um, Receptionists, because facial recognition is still in its infancy the skill that the person is applying of being able to recognize you know literally hundreds of people is really
0: something only a person can do mm. I, I stood behind Judy Dench at the BBC and one of the receptionists said yes she said uh, Judy Dench I'm here to do um thing and he went okay and he called the number through and he said um, yeah I've got um sorry what was your name again and that wasn't a very good receptionist. Yeah, well, there's all those
2: great BBC reception stories. You probably know those, don't <laughs> <laughs> they? Stephen Fraus tells the one about the uh, guy goes up and he says, hello, I am the king of Norway. I have come to see, uh, you know, Robert Peston or whatever. And the guy goes, uh, yeah, from goes up and this sorry, what were you king of again, sir? <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is, I'm like, Thor Heyerdahl. Hay- the uh, uh, explorer. So Thor Hairedale's in BBC reception. He's ordered a taxi to go home and he's been there for, like, 20 minutes. And he goes up to reception and he says, I have uh, Thor Hairedale and I've ordered a taxi. Uh, and the taxi driver's sitting over. It. Oh, he said, oh, it's me, sir. I thought you I thought you said four Airedales. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting
0: for the four Airedales. <laughs> oh, brilliant. I've not heard that uh-huh. one. <laughs> Oh, it's terrible. Do you think they'll have to completely redefine what work is? You see, there isn't actually any real
2: evidence. I mean, for a start, the self-driving cars that we thought was going to happen, they aren't happening because they're too dangerous and you know, too many things have gone wrong. As far as I know, QI fact, the only job that has been replaced by artificial intelligence so far is um, an elevator operator. You don't find those anymore unless it's done as a sort of style point, kind a yes. uniform, doing, pressing the buttons for you like they say, predictions are very difficult, especially about the future. We we don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. I mean, when you think of... I used to love Dan Dare when I was a kid, you know, the nine-year-old. Dan Dare was my thing, science fiction. And we were all supposed to be having flying cars and, yeah. you know, wearing silver jumpsuits. Rain guns. Uh, yes, rain guns. Oh. None of it's happened. So we, we don't know. And in some ways, things move... They bo- both move faster and more slowly than... I mean, one of the things that obsesses me is why hasn't human nature changed in the last million years? As far as we can tell, I remember going to Iceland. I shot nine commercials with Billy Connolly in Iceland for a credit card called Goldfish. Obviously, they weren't very good ads because I'd never heard of it since. <laughs> At enormous expense, it was fantastic fun. And while I was there, I read... Um, the Icelandic sagas, because have you been to Iceland? I've never been to Iceland, uh, no. must go. Yeah. It's absolutely, it's one of my top three countries in the world. It's the most fascinating place. Unbelievably beautiful and strange and m- mysterious and magical. And you really feel, in. Um, there's a concept in Gaelic called thin places. And Iceland's one of those places where, the fabric of apparent reality is thinner than anywhere else. So you're closer to the mystical strangeness as is, is actual reality. And I read these Icelandic sagas. and I was, you know, one of those things that made me cry. I thought they're like us. They're just like us. These guys, you know, that they used to have to do this thing where if somebody, you know, killed a member of your family, you had to have a revenge killing. And you had to go and kill someone on their side. And then you were exiled. You weren't executed. You were told to go away once you'd done that. The job And these guys going with a heavy heart to do a job that they was their social duty, but which they hated the, the actuality of. So, obviously, they didn't, in ancient Iceland, you know, have uh, telephones or, I don't know, any kind of AIs or anything else. But they were still the same kind of person with the same needs and the same failures and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. now we have all these things and we're exactly the same. It's like, why haven't we got better at that? Why have we got better at being, at relating to one another? Why are we still having wars? Why, are we, why do we still elect idiots to run great countries? What's gone wrong there, then? Well, why are we still in this cycle of every time every person becomes a parent, they've got to learn the skill all over again, alone, as if it's never been done before? Mm. What's that about? Mm. And we never learn from our mistakes, yeah. it seems. We seem to be trapped in a sort of cyclical... A sort of hamster wheel of life and and then and then you'll know more that's very odd
0: to me so once again the emphasis on making people learn technology learn facts and learn numbers and figures without actually learning how to be a human being i knew nothing about how to be a parent at all you wouldn't teach boys that yeah Okay, we're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back very shortly.
2: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: Welcome back. Okay, let's see if we can find out what John Lloyd would like to put into his time capsule. I don't hold out much hope.
2: I remember one of the things they used to do, perhaps because on Sunday, it was compulsory to write a letter home to your mother and father. And then you took the letter up to the beak at the desk and it was censored. No, no, you can't say this. You can't say, I had a really horrible time on Tuesday because somebody hit me. Take that out, go back, write it again. Wow. So your parents always got this, like the Molesworth letters. that yes. weren't anything like Molesworth. They, they always had to be positive. What's the point of that, do you think? No point at all. Well, and well, the the they keep you, that you in the school. Yeah. They keep paying the fees. Yes,
0: exactly. So
2: it works. Go and on. and that's something I have not thought about for an awfully long time. No. And I'm sure that one I was having a great conversation with this taxi driver earlier, and I suddenly had this thought that you could suddenly peel back the veil of what what we're looking at, and there would be the fourteenth century just behind it, and you're suddenly you're there. Um I had a strange experience late last year. I was, uh, went out with a friend of mine for a couple of beers. He's a poet, an interesting guy, great performance poet. And we worked out through a process of perhaps one more beer than we ought to have had that we both had an ancestor who probably uh, fought alongside William Well, His definitely did. He was the head of the archers of Normandy, his ancestor. And I also got a remote ancestor who was a Norman, and they probably both fought at the Battle of Hastings on the Norman side. (laughs) And as we were talking about this, I suddenly found myself in my my mind's eye on the deck of a ship wearing leather armour. I could smell the, taste the salt from the spray, and looking at the White Cliffs of Dover as this boat rocked across in 1066. Mm. It was like a flash vision. I don't know if it's my imagination or if it was like a peeling back of the, the veil of time or whatever. It was very real for a moment, you know what I mean? Time is a very strange thing, though, isn't it? I mean, they're, they're, it is I like, mean, very strange. But then yeah. the thing is, QI tells you everything is strange, Mike. I mean, there is nothing that is not strange. Matter is very strange. Mind is weird. Laughter, you know, which is my trade, is like I still don't have any idea what that is. no. You know, consciousness, um, weather is like, what? (laughs) Uh, You know, every kind of force, you know, gravity is absolutely inexplicably
0: strange. You know, how an atom holds together, I have no idea. So does that lead you down the route of thinking, well, maybe there is something that did it? Because I'm sort of quite a committed atheist. And one of the reasons. You see, I'd have never guessed that.
2: I was going yeah. to wonder whether you were actually a committed Christian, because you could be any of those things. And the thing is that what your your beliefs don't matter. What matters no. is your behaviour. Right. So I nobody agree. could tell from you. I mean, you could easily be a Roman Catholic, mm. you know, but you, you've
0: never told me this. No. I didn't know which way you? But spoke. I agree that it is your behaviour. So I would also think that if there is, if I'm completely wrong in saying, I absolutely believe that there is no great over bearing power or or great creator if i say that that when i get there and he says so i don't exist is that right i go oh you do exist how interesting but i was all right wasn't i oh i behaved well straight back yeah you're a straight back guy you know and then you sort of go so 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 just not believing in you when you didn't really give much evidence what i do was appear in the sky and i would have said of course there we are he does exist Well, it's one of those paradoxes. There apparently is no evidence, but actually,
2: you know, it's like Christopher Wren's epitaph, see monumentum requiris circumspice. If you require a monument, look around you. Mm. Uh, And that's what I think that for those people who think, well, the evidence is all around you. I mean, it doesn't... uh, Unfortunately... (laughs) Um, I'm not any kind of an atheist, but I'm not any kind of an anything. I'm sort of a pick-and-mix guy, you know. I've got a bit of philosophy from all sorts of areas, but it doesn't look like an accident to me. Sorry. No. It does not look like accidental. And most, there's an awful lot of physicists who are theists, even if they don't subscribe to any particular, you know, branch of theism, because the pattern is so neat. It's so elegant, you know. Mm. And the other thing is it doesn't feel meaningless. I know when you get unhappy, things seem meaningless, but it seems to me that the universe is meaningful, but it's very unclear what the meaning is. But the sense of meaning, when you listen to a great symphony, when you uh, have a meaningful conversation, when you meet mean, a meaningful book, when you, when like for the Fermat's last year, when two things collide, and you go, oh, I've got it, mm. that, that sort of... Um, what do they call it? Eureka! Eureka moment. Um, my life feels extremely meaningful to me, but I don't know what. I don't even know what that means. And I, I, I'm saying, <laughs> that when we work out what it, what the word meaning means, then we will have understood everything. Yeah. Because you can't. You are, you, I can't explain to you. I know that I've had a meaningful experience, but I, I don't know how what to you describe that. So that's another thing on the list. Of mysterious things, so meaning is one of them. Life is another one. Biologists cannot tell the difference, technically speaking, between a live hamster and a dead one. <laughs> and they can't tell the difference between broccoli and cauliflower, genetically. <coughs> Although it's obvious to us, they're yes. from the same family brassica, you know, <laughs> cabbage family. But there, there, there is no difference between those two things. But they are so different, they're obviously different. Mm. And we don't, we don't know, fuck, Mike. Honestly, that's, <laughs> that's what QI teaches. We really don't really know. At, at, at root, we do not understand or know about anything. Uh, and I was having a great conversation at QI with somebody who's married to a guy we're working with on podcasts, another kind of podcast, and she is a behavioral neuroscientist working with mice, trying to work out how the brain works better so that we can learn to behave better. Mm. And I'm fascinated by consciousness. And, you know, the, this, this core idea that scientists are banging on and they don't understand consciousness, everybody will be, freely admit, no scientist will think we understand consciousness because we don't. But the nearest they've got is that it must be in some way an emergent property of the brain. So the brain has, somehow creates this sense of self-awareness. But I think, and I have thought for 30 more years, that it's the other way around, that matter is emergent from consciousness matter is an emergent property of consciousness. And the thing that the only thing that's real is consciousness. (laughs) And this is not, it's not my idea. It's a very old Hindu idea that as they they put it, consciousness is the ground of being. So the only thing that's real is it is not even thought it's awareness. That is the thing that is that, you know, and people, you know, are pleased to call this God, if you like, or, um, you know, I call it the great whatever it is. So, <laughs> this is the thing that is, the thing that is aware right. of which we are all part and that you can think of yourself, instead of thinking of yourself as a an independent automaton with its own brain and subconscious and so on, you think of yourself more like, well, this is going back to sort of computing in the 80s, I suppose, where you had these, uh, you'd have... Um, Everybody would have terminals in their desk, wouldn't they? You'd have, a, And it would be connected to the mainframe, which is the, the company computer. was a massive thing in the basement, and, and it was connected by a wire to your, your keyboard and the screen. And that's more like the way we are, which is um, the, the mainframe is, you know, eternal cosmic awareness, and we're, a, you know, connected to that by wire in a small way, so we have a small part of
0: it. Mm. And contribute to it. Do we? Um, or are we just going through it? Do we change it?
2: So if it, well, so I don't know what the meaning and purpose is. But the thing is, I have a sense that it's there, and I, I find this a comforting idea. Again, because we tend to use the. Um, so I would metaphors are such an important thing they're a way of understanding things that give you that kind of oh my god moment I get it once you've yeah. got a metaphor it's easier to do than actually do the math sort of so we tend to use uh, contemporary metaphors so rather than doing mainframe to um, terminal that which people under 40 wouldn't understand the, the metaphor now is the cloud it's the cloud, the cloud is eternal consciousness mm. and you are the laptop which is connected wirelessly to the cloud but the cloud is the thing really and you are just a very very small part of that yes um but so in the in the the business of life after death i choose to see life as that when you die you come out the other side you go oh i get it this is hilarious this is brilliant you look back on the world as it is you think it's the best practical joke you have ever seen. It is so neat and so clever and so funny. And all these people, they don't get it. They haven't got the joke. And so whatever it is that's ultimately you, shorn of your personality and your shoes and your body and your, your memories and everything, this, the thing that is indelibly you goes back into the cloud, as it were, and looks down and goes, I have to hand it to whoever, whoever made this got a great sense of humour. <laughs> So I I find that comforting when people. Yes, it is comforting.
0: I I remember having a conversation with you when Jeffrey Perkins died. Yeah. And I I suppose really I put forward, I remember saying something similar but not the same, which in as much as I felt that we all, what we did in life, contributed to what everybody else did thereafter. And so our our input into the world (coughs) is our life. And those lives, if led a certain way, will affect the whole. So, you know, you, it's the drops in the pool and the, and the ripples going out. And so and that, I felt compensation, as much as that Jeffrey had dropped a lot of very big pebbles into the pond, you know, and, yeah. and would have affected a lot of people in all sorts of ways. Definitely. And I find that uh, compensatory when it comes to people I know dying. You know, I, I just sort of go, well, at least they made a splash. Well, you can't really discuss
2: you know god and meaning without discussing the idea that uh, we should also be a very old Hindu idea of reincarnation the idea is I don't think I think it's extremely improbable that we only get one go at it why would why would a god create if if he she or it did create everything why would they only create this very complex species with amazing abilities only to snuff them out once, what would be the point of that? Whereas the idea that you're in a again, cyclical process is a very Hindu that, uh, they're great cycles of things and one of the things I love about Hinduism I don't know much, but if I ever complete an online form as to what religion I ought to belong to, I always come out top as a Hindu so... <laughs> And one's life experience is cyclical, you know, the planets go round, you know, the seasons go round, things grow, uh, die, become manure or leaf mould and create new life and so on. So I like the idea that we're here in a kind of learning experience, not to learn, you know, the Battle of Hastings dates and so forth, but to learn how to behave. And the thing is, and then we, we go back and they, you're assessed, you know. You didn't do terribly well, did you? You kind of fucked up quite a lot. Do you like have another go? Yeah. Do you know, I thought I nearly got it. Can I have another go? I'm really <laughs> gagging to go back and, you know, try not to murder people this time around, you know? <laughs> and I think that's what's happening is that we, we are, you, you know, whatever it is that is us
0: is trying to get the point of how to be better. I can yes. see how frustrating it would be for you then that you think that human nature hasn't evolved, that we still have the same nature as we had right at the start.
2: Well, one of the things, again, that I try to live by, which has popped into my head when I was having this frightful midlife crisis in my 40s, which is don't worry about what the others are doing. It just came like a message, like a telegram. It came, This is the thing you need to remember. Don't worry about what the others are doing. You can see this in very ancient, in a almost a cliche, isn't it, proverb, comparisons are odious. Don't don't compare yourself to anything. It's, it's for the sake of the thing itself. Do what you must do and do it as well as you can. That's all you have to say.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, you know, if I was going to create a religion, it would have only one commandment, which would be, would be, do what you know to be right shall be the whole of the law. Because I believe that everyone knows... Intrinsically, yeah. And they think, yeah. I know I shouldn't, but I, I just have to have that. Mm. I want that. I'll take the consequence or maybe I'll get away with it. Everybody knows what's right. And so doing things. But So I think, I'm not trying to big myself up here, but I'm definitely a different person to what I was 30 years ago. Mm. By being bashed by events, by making an effort to try to... You know, to to try and undo some bad habits by taking advice, by having, you know, people help me, by learning from my children. I'm definitely... There are things that I look back on and think, oh, thank God I don't have to do those anymore. And some things that I haven't managed to sort out, you know.
0: The whiskey. (laughs) I'm very much the same, though. I absolutely believe that uh, I have changed. Yeah. I've I've learned. Yeah. But not everything. Nowhere near. You know, I mean, I still make terrible mistakes all the time and uh, behave in, in appalling ways. But... Well, do you know how many...
2: This is the thing I read somewhere. I don't know how if they worked this out, but somebody spent a lifetime working this out. How many human beings have ever reached nirvana or enlightenment during their lifetimes? Do you know? No. About? Well, of all the human beings... Have ever... All the human beings, all the 90 billion, I think, they think human mm. beings have lived something like that. Roughly. But... Uh, four or five yeah it's 14 (laughs) apparently really, somebody's been through the archive. so you know (laughs) probably socrates yeah Yeah. zoroaster jesus um but it's a very small number and and so we can't we can't expect that but it's like especially when you're going through when this world crisis like one day at a time one hour at a time you know be grateful for what you have try and continually be nice to people try and overcome yourself and um do things as well as you can i mean it sounds pious but it it's like that like anything that really once you get something like that i definitely feel this thing about altruism is good for you this is my latest thing is like you be nice to people implacably nice regardless of how they present as a old curmudgeon or a you know somebody's just behaved very bad or somebody's rude Go on being nice. It's amazing how things go right. Yes. The nicer you are, the more nice people you'll meet because there's a nice side to everybody. I mean, even the narcissists and the psychopaths have a nice side. Mm. Or certainly a charming one. Yes. And so you have more, or you can have, much more effect on the world than you think. And rather, like you're saying, rather movingly about Jeffrey, who Jeffrey was a great guy, you know, who did almost no collateral damage as far as I can tell in his life unlike people he knew well who were you think of a guy like Douglas there's a great piece of um, QI research about bulls in china shops recently which is <laughs> if you put a bull in a china shop it will never knock anything over no. they're incredibly delicate creatures <laughs> but so we can't use that metaphor for Douglas but Douglas whose 42nd anniversary of Hitchhiker it is this year mm-hmm. um left a lot of collateral damage because he was physically uh, ungainly and also emotionally clumsy. And so he, you know, wonderful genius, great guy, though he was, left a lot of mess in his wake, really. Mm-hmm. And Jeffrey didn't. Jeffrey was such a straight-back guy, such a decent person, such a modest and delightful, fun companion, good dad, all that stuff. And I don't know. What's the purpose of that? I mean, as an example, that we could all be a bit more like Geoffrey. And also, as you say, I don't know, the the, the unintended consequences of a life of what, what is interesting, aren't they? Rather than what we think... Yeah, people, I suppose, think it's important to get a who's who entry or, for all, for all I know, a gong from the Queen, but those things don't matter at all. You know, what matters is being... As kind as you can to the thirty people you're closest to. There's nothing else to say. Mm. If you've done that, you you join the fourteen enlightened people.
0: If if that's all you've done, and the ripple effect of that, yeah, yeah, you're nice to people. They're nice to people. We're all nice to each other. Very nice. Well, one of the things I often
2: feel about people dying is, um, so my mum died this year at ninety nine, and she had until last September she was running her own house had lots of friends and was you know amazing person and then she got ill and she went very quickly downhill it was very very sad seeing the person that she was just disappear physically just shrink and, and it was really uh, difficult but um, when people are very old like that the funeral was amazing so she was 99 and exactly 99 people came to the funeral Uh, that seemed very odd and the warmth in that room I mean there were people in grown men in their 30s like her gardener crying because he was so loved her so much she was like a second mum to him wow it was so great and the the, you know the the ripple effect that mum had left on the people in the village was amazing you know the love in that room
0: it's fabulous because normally if you get to 99 there are very few people at your funeral because nearly everybody you know is dead Yes, that's right. But also, you know, you get this thing
2: of everybody's been through the experience of the grief at the funeral. But actually what you need to do as soon as you can, you've had your cry, is pick yourself up and say, right, it can happen to anyone at any moment. You've got to live every day, every hour as fully as you can and be as nice as you can, particularly when a nice person's just died is the greatest respect you can pay them, whether or not there's a deity is Follow their example. Live as well as they did, if you can, and and be nice because mm-hmm. you might not be alive. Any especially someone like Jeffrey, like what the hell? Yeah, apparently perfectly healthy, dropped down down to the street mm-hmm. from some incredibly rare condition. Yeah, it's eleven years, isn't it, since Jeffrey died? So I, I know this because he died on Harry's eighteenth birthday. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had to keep it from Harry. Because we didn't want to spoil his party. No. So I told him the next day. And Harry is very, very fond of Jeffrey, as you probably know. Mm. So I was in Marlborough High Street, and I suddenly thought this must be more or less exactly where Jeffrey dropped down in the street, because it was Marlborough High Street, wasn't it? But then they thought he'd been hit by a lorry, didn't they? Mm. And then they worked out it was just a scaffolding lorry, which hadn't actually hit him. And i was just seeing that, I'm just standing on the curb, thinking it could have been right here, and suddenly. I smacked in the side of the face like by a cricket bat I didn't know what had happened everything went black for a second and I sort of staggered back I didn't know what had happened and a lorry the wing mirror a big plastic wing mirror had whacked me straight in the head wow and I remember thinking the whole of the next week I could have died then I could easily have been killed and I've got more life and I mustn't waste it I must not waste it I mustn't be a, you know behave like a shit I've got a not let small things worry me so much. I've got to try and remember to be nice to people I'm not normally nice to and all that kind of kid. Mm. And these things, again, going back to whether it's not really relevant whether there's a God or not.
0: No, I agree. And, you know, it's what's relevant. Strange, my brother, who's a born-again Christian, he says, but without God, how do you make people behave? And I said, well, because they know it's wrong. Mm. As you said earlier, you're perfectly aware of your behaviour being good or bad, if you want to put it in those terms. But certainly right or wrong, you know, this is not a decent way to behave. It's obvious. Well, the thing is, your brother,
2: as a born-again Christian, will probably know this, but the thing is, weirdly, you don't get to heaven by behaving well. No. You get there by God's grace. God decides. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I'll decide whether you get a place or not. Mm -hmm. Not by doing good deeds. No, no. For atheists or humanists, the reason that it is important to behave well is because it's the right thing to do. It's a circular argument. You behave rightly because it's the right thing to do. It's like in, I say this often, but my favourite word in English is autotelic. Autotelic means worth doing for its own sake. So that's what you should do as far as possible. If you do something you love because it's the right thing to do, You know, behave well because it's the right thing to do. Don't, Don't worry about it. Like, you shouldn't worry about what the others are doing. You shouldn't worry what's in the future. And forget about the past. The past is gone. You can't do it. live now, do what you love, and do it well, and be nice to people. There's nothing else to say. All the rest of it is clutter, really. Mm. If you got that far, and and that's the thing, is that, you know, you think living in the moment, that's what we're doing now, Mike, isn't it? We're yeah. just completely engaged in what we are talking about and following the moment as it unfolds. And things strange... Moments happen, and things occur, a new thought I think that's yes, a different... and there's not there's that's good enough, you know yeah. what I mean I mean, a lot of people think you know that every cell in the body contains the entire recipe for a whole human being, don't you? Hmm. so you only need one stem cell to be able to recreate all the bits of you, some people think that each human being contains the recipe for the entire universe because there's an awful lot of cells. If one cell contains the recipe for the first on a scale like that. Yes. And other people yet think that the now contains all of time. <laughs> there is only now. Mm. And everything else is like, it's, it's, we're in the centre of it at the moment, but we could really open a door and there's the 14th century on that
0: side and the 23rd century over there. Mm. There's only one thing. I've always been fascinated by those ideas, like the subtle knife, where you, you, there is a, a parallel world. Yeah, and, you know, and it's just there; it's right next to you. Embarrassingly, I—I I, not You've embarrassing, never read I it? I love
2: Philip Pullman. I've never read it because I know it's close to the novel that I'm trying to write or have uh, been trying to write for 25 years. So, parallel universes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, and Terry. I, I have a feeling and, that the subtle and knife, Pratchett
0: is and Stephen Baxter, wrote yeah. a, a book where. The, People could step from one world into another. They were almost the same world, but different. And there were trillions of them just going on and on forever. And Mm -hmm. and they're all within a tiny sheath of of cellophane, basically, between them. You just have to push (laughs) it over. Very good. Mm -hmm. Mm Well, John, I think you've probably—we're supposed to talk about things you're going to put in a time capsule. But I think you've told me lots. Oh, of oh, oh, right! I, you've haven't even, you haven't even—you forgot to ask me. No, I didn't forget to ask you. I, I, I well, I definitely would put the now in a time capsule. Yeah, I'd like to put Mike Pike in. Could you we? want Mike Pike definitely? Mike Pike, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I would suggest to you, Talking and Nim, back, well, Mike Pike with his and with with the guy, his Nim instructions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. So him, but I, you know, I have to say I I put you sitting drinking a glass of whiskey with your son looking at the stars. <laughs> I think it's a lovely thing and such a, a moment of a, almost a revelation for you, that thing where you thought you knew what the world was and you knew how, well, I know how to, to do things because this is how I did it. Mm. And then you discover that there's a completely new way of doing things, yes. which is your son's and it's, it's, it's the opposite of you. Mm. And I think that to see that, a lot of people don't. They really don't recognise that moment. They don't recognise that actually someone else's way, which may be completely different from their way, is as good. Well, Harry and I would both, you know, we agree about a great deal of this
2: sort of philosophical meanderings that we've been going through, which is most people are going through life with a bag over their head. They're completely unaware, unaware of... the Very little self-awareness, very little awareness, they thought about anything very... Short. I don't mean to... I don't mean to belittle or patronise them because I was exactly the same until I was 42. You know, I just, you know, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, you know, I was trying to be top, trying to win prizes, uh, um, trying to, you know, um, but but definitely ideas motivate And I definitely wanted to be seen to be successful, which now doesn't interest me at all. I don't care what other people think. But yeah, so it's a shame that people aren't more aware of what's going on around them because they waste so much, you know, and and, and it makes people very unhappy that they're, they're trapped in the cardboard castle of their own ego, really. Mm. You just, you've just got to step out. As Rilke, I think the German poet once said, um, one evening, take a step outside your house, which you know so well, enormous space is near. It's a great metaphor. Mm. Um, it's just step out of your... the. Bl- babbling of your monkey mind as it were step out of that get out the gumboots and just get out into the field and look at the stars from oh my god yeah this is much better yes so definitely that moment with harry sitting in the garden looking at the stars but the thing is i i've long thought that um it's not real up there that's it's a it's a painted backdrop (laughs) because it's really interesting because it just like in you know as an actor you'll love this it's like The foreground stuff, the props, you know, the practicals are all real, aren't they? The lamp and the, you know, the melon or whatever. But obviously, when you go and look at the painted backdrop of the garden, you go up close to it and it's just... It's terrible. They're brilliant scene painters, aren't they? Because it's just really, it only looks good if you're away from it. From the audience, it looks completely real. You go up close and it's just blobs. And this is the thing. It's odd, isn't it? The moon's very detailed, but the further out you go, the more, the more blurry things get. I think it's all <laughs> painted up there. You know. <laughs> no fine i'm happy to accept that I, what would i know what would i know your theory well, you're is an actor you're not facing the back wall are you no it's, no it's just it's
0: just no, to I'm make using you, it just to make you look good as <laughs> yes. usual you, you, you the whole universe has been to good. made you look to me well that's that is basically my philosophy of life but yeah. there
2: there is a very good argument that there is only one of you that everything that you know there's sort of solipsistic universe is a perfectly arguable thing yeah that I'm the only thing in it. I'm the only person. All the rest of you are dumb show, trying to, to desperately trying to... For Christ's sake, will you learn something? It's obvious. <laughs> oh, John, I've been holding up a sign all the way through this and you haven't even looked at it. Exactly. Well, I think there's... Something to be said for that. Or yeah. well, there might only be two of us. I don't really believe the guy in the next room. I've never thought he was solid. You know. Felt... <laughs> but the point but be... but is, this is one of the things that was such a joy about working with Douglas in those days. Is before Douglas became a militant atheist, he was such an open-minded, imaginative, and creative guy. And we'd have these kind of solid conversations. I wonder if this. What about this? Could this be so? Mm-hmm. You know, God forbid, anyone should be certain about anything. You know, that's why yeah. I, my beliefs are. Look, this well, is so you shake I my can... atheism. Really? Yeah, you so shake good. my atheism. So no, atheism is a, a. Nobody's even Richard Dawkins isn't an atheist, no. because he knows it's not scientific to be certain. No. Yeah, you, you know, it's only it's science only disproves things; it doesn't prove them. So he says he's ninety nine point
0: nine 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 percent atheist. Yes, I would argue it as the most likely, yeah. not not the only possibility. So there we are. Yeah. Well, I think you know we'll pick and choose what you're going to put in a time capsule. <laughs> we'll talk about it afterwards and so let other people make up their own minds. Yes, I don't okay. mind. All right, it's been fantastic talking to you, John. Great fun, yeah. Mike. Thank well, you. Always well a joy. You have been listening to My Time Capsule. With me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John Lloyd. You can subscribe to this podcast to stream all episodes for free on Acast, or your own favourite podcast provider. If you have the time, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and write a short review. Thank you very much. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all the latest about my time capsule. You just search at Pod. Or you can follow me, at Fenton Stevens on Twitter, or at Mike Fenton Stevens on Instagram. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. So, until next time, in case you're not the only person who exists, be nice to each other. Bye.